This is the East Trauma Cast. Welcome to the next Trauma Cast. Before we get started, we'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the Online Education Committee and Trauma Cast. I'm Lauren Dudas, a trauma and acute care surgeon from West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Brandon Parker, one of our East members and also a member of our online education committee to host this trauma cast. Brandon, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what we're talking about today. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here today to discuss something which is hopefully important to all of, all of us, and that's you know, saving lives and saving lives that are you know potentially unrecognizably savable. So what we're going to do is talk to a few leaders in that realm. And we have a few experts with us today that I'd like to briefly introduce. All of them have quite the impressive uh, CV. So I'll do my best to narrow that down to just a, a few moments. So Dr. Uh, Patty Byers is the principal investigator for the Florida Department of Transportation, Motorcycle Education and Injury Prevention Program called here Survive the Ride. She's had an extensive career with over 35 years of experience as a trauma surgeon and really led the way in developing the trauma system here in Florida, as well as being a leader in the Florida Committee on Trauma, as well as the Board of Governors and American College of Surgeons um, as a very active member. We also, have, we also have Dr. Paul Pepe, a longstanding professor of surgery, as well as a lifelong academician, public health and public safety leader, and longstanding governmental public servant who has pioneered many multidisciplinary advances in critical care, emergency services, disaster medicine over the last four decades. And then uh, joining us from the future in Australia is uh, early morning the next day, Mr. Uh, ben Meadley, who's an adjunct lecturer and PhD scholar in the Department of Paramedicine, as well as a founding member and researcher at the Monash University Paramedic Health and Wellbeing Research Unit. Did I pronounce that correctly? Well, good. Spot on, Monash. But that's uh, that's everything else. Spot on. Thank you. Great. And then Kelsey Enser, one of our top fellows here at University of Miami. And I have to say just one of, because I know the other fellows will be listening. But she comes from us from Northwestern after medical school at NYU. She's an amazingly accomplished clinician and researcher doing a lot of work with trauma, pre-hospital, and some big data uh, evaluation. And she'll be returning to New York to continue her career following fellowship. I look forward to all of your input on this uh, great topic today. Thank you. So the, the impetus for this discussion is really something that I always knew uh, was briefly or, or generally an issue in trauma care, but became more of a front and center concern when I got here to University of Miami as a uh, assistant professor of surgery. Briefly, I'm an emergency medicine physician that then trained in surgical critical care up at Shock Trauma, and I have an interest in trauma, ICU, as well as pre-hospital because of my emergency medicine background. And what I found through originally the research that Dr. Byers was doing here is that we have a significant amount of deaths in the pre-hospital arena that are potentially preventable. We all know that trauma is the leading cause of death in the, the young and healthy patient population. And more concerning, most of those deaths occur in the pre-hospital arena. So as we strive to improve our care in the hospital, it's important to take a step back and look at the trauma system as a whole and what improvements we can make in the pre-hospital arena before the patients hit our resuscitation bay or emergency department. So we're gonna hear a little bit from Ben in just a moment. And I think it's important to put this in context to the Australian pre-hospital system. So we'll have a few moments at the end of this recording to 
allow Ben to give us a summary of the way that that system is organized and functions. But to further highlight the general topic we're discussing today is that we know from work that both Ben has contributed to as well as Dr. Byers that about 35 to upwards of 50% of the pre-hospital deaths have injury patterns when reviewed on medical examiner reports that are potentially uh, consistent with survivable injuries. Dr. Byers, can you go over a little bit of what you found with the, the motorcyclists, which, um, as you know, Dr. Byers has taught me, is a, a, a good cohort to look at because it really stresses the trauma system to a significant degree. Um, this is a, a trauma patient that is typically severely injured and really does not allow for any error or uh, hesitancy in the trauma system um, to allow uh, a full survival. Yeah, unlike, um, um, unlike, uh, motor vehicle crashes, motorcycle crashes have 80% of the people are injured or killed compared to only 20% in cars. And, you know, it's a huge problem in the U.S. 5,000 people are killed every year from motorcycle crashes. And if you look at Florida, we're number one in the country and we have 500 approximately every year and Dade County has 50 a year. Uh, so we wanted to look and do some autopsy reviews to understand why these people were dying and um, basically um, we did review the Australian data and found a similarity. And we found that 32% of, of uh, people that died in, in the field had uh, potentially preventable uh, or potentially survivable injuries, I should say. Um, they, were, they were basically declared dead in the field um, and had survivable uh, injuries when you compare them to injuries that we normally would treat and, and people would do well. We obviously excluded all non-survivable injuries by definition. And the majority of these were actually, we uh, deemed them airway. Uh, they died from a loss of airway. Um, a few of them died from exsanguination and one died of thoracic injuries that was actually taken to a non-trauma hospital emergency room. But when you look at their injuries, their injuries that could be treated in a trauma center. And uh, we compared the ISS score of the ones we said were uh, survivable compared to the ones that we said were non-survivable and there was a huge difference. So we feel that it's pretty valid. So this is a concern that we have. And, and you know, the policy in Florida and Dade County is not to do um, cardiac arrest or resuscitation for uh, blunt trauma, specifically blunt trauma victims and often not even penetrating trauma if they're already um, in cardiac arrest. So um, I saw that you have some experience in Australia doing that. I was wondering, you know, what you yeah. think about that protocol and how you, yeah, how you make those decisions. Yeah, really interesting. Actually, uh, the co-author of the, the work that kind of prompted uh, Brandon uh, contents in us has looked quite closely at that cohort of patients, the, um, the, the blunt trauma who uh, have suffered in-field cardiac arrest, uh, which historically has been exactly like you say uh these people who who uh, personal services have written off as as unsurvivable uh but our algorithm algorithm now since 2017 for the uh for the ground-based ems uh for the intensive care in fact for all paramedics uh not just the intensive care uh cohort a a traumatic cardiac arrest either penetrating or blunt now uh we uh uh, penetrating trauma in Australia is almost unheard of, uh, and cardiac arrest associated. We have we have no guns. Uh, you, we we do no 
no ballistic injuries at all. So, uh, so it's very, very rare. It would be an industrial accident or, or something for penetrating trauma. So we, we just don't see those patients uh, in any way. But for blunt trauma, they represent, and, and in fact, motorcyclists. Uh, unfortunately, we call them temporary citizens here in Australia. So uh, motorcyclists are, are a big uh, part of, uh, overly represented in the data from, um, from major trauma. Um, and the algorithm that came out a couple of years back now, 2017, I think, was this kind of scattergun approach, I guess, if you like, which is uh, needle decompression bilaterally irrespective uh, followed by uh, the administration of 20 mils per kilo of normal saline and then uh, a reassessment uh, from there for the ground-based EMS and for the paramedics working in the helicopters, uh, they would uh, essentially extend that to a, uh, a empirical uh, finger, de uh, finger, de finger thoracostomy decompression bilaterally, ultrasound to view the, uh, the pericardium to see if there is uh, any myocardial contractility whatsoever. Um, followed by uh, four units of packed red cells and uh, some calcium. So that would be the uh, that would be the universal approach to all infield cardiac arrest. Now, the problem being with the helicopter service who carry that higher end skill set is they're usually the last ones there. So um, it's rare it's rare to be able to get that. And and quite clearly, uh, all of you have that extensive experience in trauma care. Is is what we actually need is this, this to look upside down. You need your basic paramedics to be able to go in manage the airway with a superglottic which which ours can and uh, that's part of the algorithm to maybe put pop an eye gel in and give four units of blood and decompress the chest uh, as a as a start so we we would not have enough data at this stage to make a comment on what, on what that kind of uh that empirical uh treatment would look like but um that's where we currently stand do you do cpr and not until all of those things have been delivered. Yeah. And so once once the end of that al algorithm is reached, so uh, either, either intubation, supraglottic airway, chest decompression, fluid, uh, and or blood, depending on who's delivering the care, um, uh, within that couple of minutes, if there is a no return of spontaneous circulation, then it's treated as a medical cardiac arrest from there. Okay, thanks. It's interesting. And, and I think, you know, this is a lot of, this is focusing on the TBI and hemorrhage. It seems like from both of your work that is uh, the apnea associated with TBI um, and the, the potential you know, yeah. control of hemorrhage seem to be the two places to focus a lot of this um, effort in terms of saving these potentially survivable patients. Uh, Paul, I know, you know, is a founder and leader of a, a coalition that comprised of most of the jurisdictional EMS medical directors the nation's largest US cities. So what do you see as a procedural approach or a, a feasible approach to these out of hospital cardiac arrests and the trauma patients across the US? Well, since we're geographically uh, spread out here today and time zone wise, I can tell you it's all over the map uh, when they <laughs> do it, no matter where it is around the world. And it can be varied uh, one county to another in the United States. Um, one of the things that I did want to touch upon is that, you know, whereas people like Dr. Byers is a distinguished professor. I'm kind of more of an extinguished professor. And looking back on, on my, uh, you know, looking back on the work I did when I was in Seattle in the 70s, I, I learned very early on and, and what the work that all of you have done here really demonstrates what I learned back then, which was my bosses were saying that a lot of these folks just forget to breathe. And what it means is that 
uh, if you have a brainstem twist the way you're hit, and, and the analogy was made to me, you'd rather get a, a straight shot to the forehead than the left twist from a left hook from a, a boxer, um, because something as simple as that could uh, that has to be restimulated or resecured, and that may be a lot of what Dr. Byers is finding out here with a lot of these folks, and it makes complete sense in some respects. Um, but um, one of the things I do uh, have done over the years being in the streets, um, you know, whatever it's been the last 40, 50 years, is that uh, one of the things I would do to, as a quick assessment, because I like to see, well, it was a car wreck or whatever. Um, did they have a ventricular fibrillation? Let's rule that out. It could be shock. You know, one of those things that you do. So we'll try to get a 12 lead on or, or just, a, I'm sorry, rhythm strip on if we can. But the interim, one of the things I used to always do, particularly with penetrating injuries the, uh, in that situation, because we had a lot on the streets, of, for example, of Houston when I was there, um, is actually to look at the mucous membranes. And it oftentimes it was better in the dark because I could get a flashlight, look in there, and you're either going to be red, white, or blue. And, um, and of course, unless it was carbon monoxide or cyanide, it wasn't going to be red. So these moribund patients would either be blue or, or white. And uh, I remember just before the Parkland Florida shooting here, uh, I was actually training the SWAT team before we went in. And uh, that's exactly what I brought up to them. I said, what would you rather be in this moribund situation? You know, blue or, or white, meaning pale. And they said, uh, blue sounds bad. I said, no, you've got probably you know, at least five grams of desaturated hemoglobin out there in each of your 100 mils if you are turning blue. And so that means there's some blood alone. Until today, when we now have blood in the field, that was a bad sign if you had exsanguinated, obviously. But then it begs the next question, which is what you all are saying here today, is that if, uh, you know, if they're, if they're not exsanguinated, then there's something that may be highly reversible here, okay? In other words, they maybe they did stop the breathe. So should we provide airway? Should we breathe them, jumpstart them again? And maybe it's something as simple as that, especially in a blunt injury where they fell over or they may have uh, compromised their own airway. We just could get a, or they have an anti-gum fracture, bilateral mandibular fracture that we could just pull out and make better right away. So there could be some very simple things that could be done. And then, as you mentioned, the, the thoracotomies, I love the fact that you guys are bringing POCUS, you know, the point of care ultrasound to the field to see if it's a pericardial about it. Because those are the things that, um, that could potentially be reversible right there. And that was one tip. Now, let's say it is pale looking. You could still have those other issues going on. And now today, maybe we can bring some blood to the field as well. So there may be more salvageable persons than we know before. We, need, we maybe need to change the, the, the mindsets. Well, one last thing I would say is that uh, you know, I did a lot of those studies in Houston, whatever it was, 30, 40 years ago, about you know, who's going to survive or not survive. And it was really interesting that we extended the time that people tolerated uh, CPR in, in, after trauma. And I call that post-traumatic circulatory rest, not post-traumatic or in-field in cardiac arrest in, you know, in with uh, all due respect, of course, to uh, what Ben's experience is. But this is just me being a, you know, an obsessive physiologist in that uh, a lot of the people who finally go into cardiac arrest usually are a flat line. Let's take a penetrating injury that's exsanguinating. Um, that they'll start with a tachycardia and then go into a bradyasystolic arrest. But there's a point in time when you no longer can feel pulses, what we would call an arrest. I, I call it a circulatory arrest. They eventually go into a profound cardiac arrest. So there's a spectrum that we can capture them in. Just because they're pulseless and it's a blunt injury, just because they're pulseless and they're a penetrating injury, doesn't mean they're gone. And that's why it's probably 
the answer is probably they are gone if they're a flat line after some penetrating injury or whatever, if we've double checked all those other things that we were mentioning before. So um, anyways, those are my immediate uh, thoughts. And I think that, you know, again, some of the studies I did years ago, looking at post-traumatic circulatory arrest, um, we said that the blunt injuries didn't do so well, but we had checked out all those things, airway, EKG, you know, and, um, and see, wanted to see if it was a single organ injury that could be helped under those circumstances. So keep those in mind as we start making some kind of decision algorithms or rules. So, sorry, I thought I rambled on too long, but I'm Paul Pepe and I approve this message, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. So, so I think, you know, to, to summarize that and reiterate the previous discussions we've had on this topic, there, there is a continuum and, you know, it starts with a patient in shock. Uh, they go on to circulatory arrest as, as you term it. Um, they then are in a salvageable cardiac arrest and at some point become an unsalvageable cardiac arrest. And I, I think the role of the trauma system is to determine where they are on that continuum and try to reverse them to a, a shock and ultimately survivable state to get them to the, the trauma center. And it sounds like the best way to do that is some combination of uh, telemetry, uh, point of care ultrasound, potentially looking at their mucous membranes. So looking at their eyelids with a, a flashlight and seeing what color there they have, and then even end tidal CO2 if there's a, a way to do that. Yeah. Um, and and I, other... I left out some of the procedures like you, but we heard already about, you know, the finger thoracostomies, uh, mm -hmm. airway maneuvers, all the things, double check the EKG. A lot of times what you'll find out, there's a rhythm there going on. And that mm -hmm. tells us a lot right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think then, um, one of the, oh, sorry, Brandon, go on. No, please go ahead then. The, um, I think uh, there's some great points from Paul there. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the educational opportunities that we see, especially with junior paramedics, is, um, is all around that patient assessment. I think that Paul has summed up very nicely is that, and this uh, uh, standardised approach to patient assessment so that we don't miss those things. And, and especially in these types of cases, uh, and again, for a, in our situation, four and a half thousand paramedics and and a handful of major trauma cases a year by by distribution relative to the amount of people that are actually going to uh, attend these cases, um, the cognitive load goes through the roof uh, as they arrive on scene at a case like this. And the previous ten jobs they've done a, an exacerbation of COPD or. Or, a, or an infected toe or whatever it might be, some primary healthcare complaints, and then suddenly they've gone from, from doing primary healthcare assessment to managing a major trauma in the field who's, who's peri-arrest, um, which is what, when that, that ultimately uh, famous saying is they need to fall to the level of their training, not rise to, the, rise to the challenge per se. So a systematic algorithmic approach of that airway breathing circulation, and it's, it's nothing new, um, but it's actually just trying to make sure that people come back to that because they're just not going to be able to make uh, complex diagnostic decisions in that environment. And that simplifying it is, is the key. And, uh, and then, as Paul says, and as Patricia had alluded to, you know, some of the things that lead to preventable deaths are not, well, I didn't perform a pre-hospital RSI and that's why the patient died. It's never, it's never those. It's, well, they're... A didn't get attended to, or their C didn't get attended to, and and they had a, a preventable infield death. Dr. Meadley, in your article, you actually mentioned that uh, I think it's like there was maybe six opportunities where a procedure wasn't performed. I, I don't think you actually described what those procedures were. You know, obviously from our our previous research, we're interested in in possible airway opportunities that that might have been missed in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. Is that similar 
to your findings as well? Yeah. So, um, look, a couple of them were, were you know, residual pneumothoraces on CT at, at uh, post-mortem, um, a couple of other bits and pieces and, yes, some airway opportunities. But um, I think uh, for the most part, when we look at the, the procedural opportunities, few of them were, were these, you know, glamorous procedures, if you like. It's, it's the basics, like patient assessment, like um, simple airway management. might even just be a triple airway manoeuvre and a jaw thrust that, that changes the patient with uh, impact brain apnea that, uh, that means that they don't go into cardiac arrest. And, and you know, there's obviously some public, um, public education opportunities there as well for the person who turns up to the unconscious motorcyclist that, that has happened in front of them. Uh, where it may simply just be an airway rectification issue that changes the outcome. Yeah, and so that, that brings up two good points that I'd like to discuss. First, uh, I have you know one point to make, which is we're kind of taking all comers in in this discussion. Which in Australia, if you're lucky enough to be there, it seems to be you know blunt trauma, but here in the U.S., where we're focused, uh, or excuse me, where we you know are tasked with taking care of penetrating and blunt traumatic arrest. Uh, what are your thoughts, Kelsey, on the stay and play uh, approach versus you know scoop and run, and how we should be delineating what kind of patients we're giving this you know intensive evaluation and treatment in the field to? Well, I think you know more recently there's been some surprising evidence that um, the the scoop and run technique seems to benefit uh, penetrating trauma more so than blunt. Uh, I think that this coincides with some of the, the findings that we've had that it seems like some of these patients might have more complexity to their, their traumatic injuries that may not be easily identifiable. And uh, most likely given the fact that they're not actively exsanguinating, um, it'll maybe not having a stable airway when you're uh, preparing for transport or um, identifying some other uh, concerning findings or, or leading to higher mortalities in our ca these cases. The other uh, interesting topic that we've briefly mentioned here is, you know, who is seeing these patients when they need to be seen. And that's, you know, the delay of the first responders getting on scene and potentially in some of the work that Dr. Byers has done is, you know, police being unseen prior to EMS. So what portion of this do you think has to be a focus on things like stop the bleed and survive the ride that is focused on teaching laypersons and police and those that will be there immediately? And what portion is really a, a trauma system or uh, EMS approach? Or do we consider the lay people and the, the police part of the trauma system in terms of needing to go out and educate these people that are first on the scene? Well, I think that um, if you look at 50% of motorcycle fatalities are actually on the, are seen deaths. So if you look at that, I mean, I think you have to engage the police and the lay public um, as part of the trauma system. We are trying, uh, we teach helmet removal, which was never done before. Police never did that before, even took off the helmet to see if the person was breathing, never mind to assess or do anything about it. So um, we are kind of changing the culture that way. And actually, because we kind of were able to get the introduction with the stop the bleed, which they've accepted. And now since they've accepted that, we're just kind of pushing the envelope and saying, well, take off the helmet, look at the airway, you know, do a simple jaw thrust, see if they start breathing. So we're trying to, you know, change, change that culture. And hopefully that some of these people that have just um, stopped breathing can't, will, can be saved. I'm not familiar with Survive the Ride. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? 
Well, it's just uh, it's a Florida program that um, is funded by the uh, Florida Department of Transportation because of our horrific uh, number of uh, motorcycle fatalities. We're number one in the country. And even though we were head to head with Texas and California, we've surpassed them while they have actually started to decline a little bit, despite having more um, motorcycle registrations. <clears throat> so um, we're involved with doing teaching. It's a multi-pronged program where we do um, outreach, we do um, a teachable moment in the hospital, and then we go out and do first responder and paramedic training to be more sensitized to motorcycle crashes. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, hi. Um, so we, what, we, what I've kind of summarized so far, what we've been talking about is evidence to say, hey, many of these people, we need to sort of look at them a little closer. They may be salvageable. And two points have been the bystanders there uh, trying to do things like stop the bleed and some of the other issues we've talked about. Um, but also the other issue is, the, is not doing anything that's iatrogenic. So let's say we do get there. One of the things is that there is very little preload in both, in both cases here, whether it's someone who's hypovolemic or they have an obstruction from pericardial tamponade or they have an obstruction from tension pneumothorax or whatever it may be. And those cases that you don't wanna overzealously ventilate them with positive pressure breaths, unless they're taking their own deep breaths, uh, I'd be, you know, and we're talking about more of patients here that I'd be very careful and make sure. What I, we learned also is that there was an interesting question that you brought up before, uh, Dr. Byers, about should we do CPR or not, you know, meaning compressions. So uh, first of all, if you're trying to do compressions, is that gonna help if you're hypovolemic? Is it gonna help if you're have, you've got pericardial tamponade or if you've got, it doesn't make sense. I have to say anecdotally, when we've done it, it's uh, over the years, it seems to be useful, um, but it doesn't make sense either physiologically from some extent, except that perhaps it creates a kind of a thoracic pump model that we're doing. And um, one other issue that it might be is that, um, again, uh, we gotta be very careful about not overzealously ventilating. These people probably need one breath, maybe even every eight or 10 seconds at the most, but you gotta get a good lung inflation on them presumptively if they don't have attention pneumothorax, because if you're going to pump blood through it, you have to make sure every lung zone is open for adequate oxygenation. You have to make sure every lung zone is open to get better flow through there and not increase pulmonary vascular resistance. So there's a lot more to it than just some of the things that we're talking about already that we also, once we do work these guys that we don't, you know, uh, overwork them as well in terms of what we're doing. But on the other hand, the big picture is here. We're not doing a lot right now. And um, in some of these cases that could be saved. And uh, I'm very excited that uh, you're taking this leadership role in both in Victoria and here in Dade County, Florida. Well, I think the CPR is exactly what you said, but I mean, I asked that question in the context of the fact that they give blood. Yeah. So the question is, if you give blood, I mean, at that point, you're priming the pump a little bit. Yes. Yep. Yep. And which is exactly what I was saying. That's the one thing that may change some of our approach here in the future is be able to see if we can get some of these moribund people back uh, with, and I like the idea of the whole blood and, and not components. Yeah. The, uh, that's one of the logistical challenges we're looking at at the moment. We've set up uh, having paramedics uh, from a, just a legislative and, um, and, a, and a logistics point of view, getting blood onto the helicopters back in 2011 in our service uh, was was a challenge, and it's a, more about storage and wastage, of course, which uh, nobody nobody wants. Um, and uh, 
but we've established a very good system and a good trust with the blood banks at the the major trauma centres and the, and the regional hospitals that provide the blood to the to the regional helicopter bases. Um, but but like I think we've all acknowledged, there's a group, there's a cohort of patients in in the metropolitan areas that that miss out in our service and and could certainly benefit in your your uh, jurisdictions because of their geography. Ironically, they're they're in the major metropolitan areas. They may be trapped. They may not be trapped. The motorcyclists uh, usually aren't, but uh, even still, those kind of peripheral metropolitan areas where you may not get a, a helicopter dispatch. We don't generally dispatch our helicopters into the metropolitan area. They really generally go to the to the regional places. Um, then then you you miss out on some of these things that, ironically, the the regional cohort of patients may get, whereas these inner metro patients are just in that void of um, of where the paramedics there going. Well, I'm you know, I'm about 20 minutes away from the major trauma center. And, you know, how many, how much, uh, how many interventions should I provide here on scene? When you talk about the the picture of this patient that Paul paints very nicely of, you know, peri-arrest, hemodynamically unstable with a couple of injuries that can be treated. Um, and how, how do we do that most efficiently? And then you look at all of these studies that suggest uh, that sticking some of these patients in the back of a cab or a police car may actually be uh, more beneficial. Um, where's the sweet spot in there to, to get everything they need without being outside the hospital for a second longer than they need to be? And do we can we provide the ultrasound images and, and some real-time footage to the receiving trauma centre, as an example, uh, some work that's been done locally um, so that... So that the the team at the receiving center their feet on the ground and and halfway running in the whole game uh before the patients even come through the door so uh, some of that stuff uh, will be interesting to explore and uh, i know there's a, a cohort of people looking at google glass or something similar to provide uh, decision um support for infield major trauma uh, that's been trialed with the military that we're, we're looking to have a look at in the uh, in civilian ems so an interesting question also is adding to the things is that we talked about that you, some of the things you need to do right away, either assessment wise and or interventionally, either by the bystanders or the arriving people or even police or whatever it may be, or the first responders or paramedics, but then, and then making sure we do it right. You know, when we go and we're moving along, but then uh, the next part is the, 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 are the hospitals prepared to take care of this? Are they just going to say, Oh, he's dead. You know, whatever. That's the other end of things is are we prepared? And so, for example, um, and the big question is, could you, should you take the extra five or 10 minutes to go on to the Alfred or should you just stop at the Epworth or whatever it may be, whatever that is, we have our own, um, what's the word here, uh, you know, correlates to that as well. So those are other questions uh, that, that come up. So Ben, I don't know, Ben, do you have an answer to that or Eddie, or you have it? Yeah, look, um, yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, what's, what does, that extra five or 10 minutes going past the center that may be able to do a laparotomy give to the patient, for example, if they've got an intra-abdominal bleed. And, um, and uh, that, that's, it's the eternal question that's, that it's difficult to answer. So um, it's, very, um, it's very difficult to kind of make a, a decision. The data would say, keep driving. That's, uh, that's, that's the, the point of difference really, I guess. Okay. So what I've found interesting is that with the exception of maybe Google Glass, you know, we have all these experts here and we're really not talking about cutting edge Reboa, putting people on ECMO, you know, to a certain extent, this is basic 
you know, intervention. It's one, making the decision to do it, the decision to intervene on this patient. And then two, you know, a simple airway maneuver, uh, you know, a physical exam and potentially, you know, some point of care ultrasound and, and giving blood would be the cutting edge. But um, this is something that hopefully most systems could achieve. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree. And and that's what came out of the study uh, that, that we undertook about these potentially preventable deaths. There, there wasn't these giant chasms in the care. It's more tweaking the system as opposed to reinventing it. And, um, you know, it's you, we're starting with trauma survival, as, as you no doubt uh, would have a similar outcome. We're wandering into the marginal gains rather than the 10 percenters. You know, we're really just trying to finesse things to try and improve survival, which, you know, those those percentages translate to real people and real numbers of, of, of people's lives, no doubt, in, in, in relatively large numbers. And more so for, for the US where you've got a population, you know, that's uh, more than 10 times the size of that of Australia. So the, um, those, those small gains, uh, uh, like you say, uh, we had a presentation at, uh, at Monash within our paramedicine programs from uh, Professor Mark Fitzgerald, who's kind of a world-leading trauma expert, who's the head of trauma services at the Alfred Hospital. And, uh, you know, they had a, a Reboa box in the uh, emergency department there for a couple of years and, and running a trial. And they, they never used it, not once, um, for, for whatever reason. And I'm not a surgeon, and, and uh, obviously, and uh, I won't go into that any further. But their intention was to absolutely, absolutely perform that procedure, but it never got done for whatever reason because of whatever reason that uh, the, the flow through the department to the theatre uh, is within that the confines of that hospital. Um, so, of course, you can never suggest that you don't investigate these things to see if they're going to improve outcomes. Um, Paul, uh, having been in EMS for a long time, will have seen every gadget and toy known to man uh, that, that paramedics and, and associated companies will have tried to introduce to improve patient outcomes. Uh, but a solid patient assessment and interventions on the ABCs will win every time over a, over a proprietary gadget, despite the fact we'd all love to get rich off such a thing. Um, it's uh, The simple fact is, is that uh, assessing, identifying, and then fixing those physiological or anatomical problems to the extent that you can, and, and ultimately having that patient at definitive care as soon as possible, that, that's, that's how the system should work. Yeah, and Ben made a, another great point there that I want to, you know, put out as a disclaimer to our pre-hospital providers out there that this is not a, a bashing of the, the care that's done there. And, you know, the, the pre-hospital care is, is really exceptional in many cases, but what we're doing here is trying to push that envelope to those last few marginal gains. I think, you know, we see mm -hmm. a great amount of survivors, but, you know, what we've shown is that there's potentially more out there. And just as you mentioned, Ben, although it's small, it does turn into, you know, people and, and their families that, you know, hopefully get to go home. That's right. And I think, um, look, I, um, I, I agree with you and, and it's quite obvious, you know, I'm a, I'm a paramedic sitting with a bunch of surgeons and I, I I'm really, um, really quite pleased to to and and humbled to be invited to speak with such an eminent group and it it and and you quite obviously aren't having to go at pre-hospital care at all it's quite obvious that this is all about systems improvement and uh and across the world i think that the motivation for any paramedic to get out of bed in the morning and turn up to work is is to send someone home to their family uh ultimately as part of the healthcare system so certainly appreciate those comments and the uh and the systems working together are ultimately exactly what changes those outcomes. But um, a lot of the time, historically, 
we call it paramedicine in in Australia because it's um, it has evolved to a to a registered healthcare profession that, that are all universally tertiary educated, and we're very lucky uh, that that's how the systems evolved. Um, but moving away from defining yourself by an intervention is a really important part of the the professional progression, you know, and, 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 you know, whether it be an IV or a piece of plastic into a trachea or, a, or whatever it might be, um, defining ourselves by, by the skills we perform um, is, is to be moved to the past. It's just part of that overall healthcare that you provide, whether it is primary healthcare to a, to a chronically unwell person or, or a major trauma case. And you mentioned about, um, you know, simple airway maneuvers, potentially that lay people could, involve themselves in when they first arrive at the scene. Do you have any initiatives in Australia um, for a lay person education about trauma interventions? Um, no, uh, other than encouraging um, first aid training for, uh, for a majority of the population, uh, it, is, it is also an opportunity here um, for, for those public education campaigns along with, you know, getting vaccinated and everything else. So um, the uh, it's, it's very, um, it's very challenging. Um, and I, I don't envy people have to kind of, con, you know, convince the public and uh, to, to intervene in these situations again, which might be something that's quite confronting for them if they've witnessed a motorcycle accident or a major car wreck in front of them. Um, but no, we don't. And, uh, but it, it certainly is an opportunity. And those are opportunities that we're hoping to hopefully taking advantage of here. And that was, you know, what we talked about in terms of expanding the trauma system to include the, the lay public and the survive the ride campaign has done that by, you know, targeting places like the Daytona bike week to go and educate people. So not only in law enforcement, but, you know, if someone's in a, a motorcycle collision, it, it's likely that there's someone riding a motorcycle next to them. So if you educate that population on a simple technique, like how to remove a helmet safely and how to do an airway maneuver, that's a potential life save. It's a great initiative. It's and it makes sense. You know, you're leveraging off the uh, within the population to um, to assist, and uh, and I think it's a great initiative. Yeah, the basis of the the on the patient side, the intervention is done um, right after their their accident when they're admitted to the hospital. Uh, and Dr. Byers had shown that there was a, a actually a good opportunity or a teachable moment at that time, and she demonstrated statistically significant uh, improved test scores for all patients that were educated under the system, uh, both in the short term, directly after the, the program, and then in the long term, uh, several months to a year after, out of, after completing it. What were they testing there? So she goes over kind of basic roadway safety and especially motorcycle safety uh, practices. And um, they talk about ways that they can kind of improve or prevent uh, future crashes. Who does the education in that program? Is it your trauma program outreach coordinator or nurses? Uh, it's actually predominantly, I think, Dr. Byers herself and uh, some of her research assistants that she has. Yeah, it's really great that the Department of Transportation here in Florida has allocated the resources to allow, you know, Dr. Byers to have a team in order to, you know, provide that education and then the follow-up to make sure the education has an impact. Sounds like a really great program. So if any of you guys had to comment on what you think would be the future of pre-hospital care, one thing we could change that would have the most significant impact. This could just be a wish list. It doesn't have to be something realistic. What would you say it is? So, so if I was to change anything, well, first of all, is to uh, make sure that we are not 
pronouncing people dead right like that uh, without doing a, a quick assessment, which could be like, okay, see if they've exsanguinated, you know, by uh, looking at their, their eyes to get it just, again, it's not absolutely objective. It helps us determine that maybe there is something reversible. We make sure that they're, uh, see if it's something, an airway or just breathing, remind them to breathe, whatever it may be. Uh, all those things are so simple, double checking that it's not a tension that, you know, and maybe it's even a pericardial tamponade, less apt to be able to fix right away, but just be thinking that way and not just call it quits just like that, just because they're blunt or they're penetrating or there's five minutes out or 20 minutes out, et cetera. And then secondarily, not only involve the public at large in terms of stop the bleed or, uh, you know, some of the other issues we talked about today or, you know, manage the airway even, um, but also um, to remember that we don't get iatrogenic and on the way into the hospital, make sure we don't resellously ventilate a patient that has no preload, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and to keep in mind that uh, there is uh, more to it than to making sure we're going to the right place at the right time who could do the right thing, depending on what that intervention is needed. And that's where a lot of us in the medical director role have to come in and help them out with that one as well. And what are your thoughts, Ben? Well, it's interesting. I, uh, I'll take it to the other side of the world. I, was, I went to uh, the Indian government, contacted the Australian government about, um, about uh, seven or eight years ago to, to find, well, what was the thing they needed to change in a city uh, or the multiple cities within uh, India, where they've got these massive trauma mortality, uh, large amount of transport-related accidents, uh, accidents. Sorry, uh, with with fairly low-trained EMS staff, and uh, and so myself and a couple of other ambulance Victoria uh, senior paramedics travelled to three major cities within India, and we developed a, a pre-hospital notification app for uh, because there's very high uh, smartphone usage in India, so uh, the. the they've kind of bypassed the landlines and, and everyone's mobile dependent. So smartphone usage is ubiquitous and uh, the paramedics were able to just put in some basic vital sign information, such as just gender, heart rate, blood pressure. So you can generate a shock index and um, conscious state. And that information was sent to the hospital. Prior to that, there was no pre-hospital notification. So they'd come in with a person hit by a train with both legs off and just go, well, here, here they are. Um, and uh, that was simply a systems change. There was no interventions that were that went with that. It was just simply letting the trauma receiving service know that you were coming was enough to make a substantial change to the system. Now, the uptake of that ultimately wasn't. Uh, it was a there was a number of cultural barriers to the uptake, and and it wasn't as utopian as we we, we thought it was going to be. But for me, really. I've said it a number of times, it is basic changes in, in systems care. So delivery to a major trauma service that's capable of providing the interventions, especially for neurotrauma um, where, and, and cardiothoracics, uh, those two are the, probably the big ones, certainly within our jurisdictions that not all capable, not, not, not all hospitals would be capable of and, and probably only the major trauma services. Um, and then uh, from the, excuse me, the paramedic education point of view, rapid but systematic assessment, moving through the things that you find wrong, fix them at a basic level. So if the airways compromise it, they don't need an RSI. Uh, as Paul intimated, they may in fact die from that, uh, and, and especially if they're only you know, 10, 15 minutes away from a hospital um, and, and to get these people moving. And, and that, I think, is an indicator of um, of good healthcare by just going through rapidly assessing, identifying, treat it to the basic level, and then get going. The arrest 
group are a bit different and and that empirical kind of treat everything until proven otherwise is it seems to be the way to go you know for our motorcycle crash victims we're finding that airway may be a more important component than we previously may have realized uh i think also there's maybe the development of um like a two-prong approach depending or a decision looking for a decision tree or something where um, we start to treat our penetrating and blunt injuries uh, differently as far as their pre-hospital assessments and interventions. So thank you very much. So in an attempt to provide my input as well as a brief summary, I think recognition and education is key. So recognizing that some of these pre-hospital fatalities are potentially preventable, recognizing that patients in traumatic arrest or traumatically critically ill potentially have an injury pattern that is consistent with those uh, that we know can survive. And then really a, uh, a two-prong approach. So on one hand, you have the basics, a thorough evaluation and physical exam, as well as the basic maneuvers, including an airway maneuver and potentially a more invasive uh, airway supplement, like a superglottic airway, uh, approaching, but not necessarily including an endotracheal intubation in the pre-hospital setting may be beneficial in blunt trauma. And then uh, some more invasive techniques like uh, needle decompression and uh, more advanced things like ultrasound in the pre-hospital setting have a unique role in this uh, cohort. Thank you all very, very much, uh, especially, you know, Ben, who I don't even know what time it is or day or year it is over in Australia, <laughs> but thank you very much. Um, and Paul, thank you for giving us the time. Dr. Byers, you know, had to step away. I know this was supposed to be a first name thing, but I just can't call Dr. Byers, Patty. Uh, and then Kelsey, thank you very much. I know you had to step away and save some lives during that. Well, Brandon, you did an awesome job collecting some really interesting guest speakers. And the first time in a little while, we've had an international speaker. So very good job. And as a plug, if you have not checked out the East Minutes, I encourage everyone to utilize some of the other online education committee resources available. Those are a brief snippet about a bunch of interesting clinical topics. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. So here's a quick bonus section where we're going to give Ben the opportunity to give us a rundown on the way that the Australian pre-hospital system functions and in general the, the way that the trauma system functions and how it may be similar or different to the trauma systems we're familiar with. Thanks very much, Brandon. Uh, hopefully you can hear me there okay. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, we, we keep in touch a lot with our, our uh, US brothers and sisters in regards to the system-wide performance and in fact the Victorian state trauma system which is probably uh, approaching well uh, 22 years of maturity um, had a lot of input from uh, Baltimore Maryland and and the system that was set up there so there's a very good strong link between uh, shock trauma and the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne in Victoria so there's a little bit of a backstory there and in fact the the helicopter emergency um, medical system uh, was they, where they kind of grew in tandem 
very much a similar setup to, to the point where the aircraft are the same model. That's really quite a close link. But um, the, the pragmatic approach that was taken to trauma care about 20 plus years ago now was that single system approach. So the two, there's only two adult major trauma centres in, uh, in our state. And uh, those major trauma centres are both within the metropolitan area. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting uh, spread of population in that uh, there's uh, about 7 million people in the state now of which uh, five or so, or maybe five and a half million live in the, in the major metropolitan area. And then the rest are spread out all over the place over a very, very large area. I guess uh, a state that would be, uh, let's say it's, the size of, of three quarters of Texas. So it's a very large area that, that has really one really large metropolis. So it can be difficult to provide consistent trauma care over such a wide area, but we do have a single EMS uh, across the entire state. Exactly the same clinical practice guidelines, exactly the same education, exactly the same uh, educational requirements. So all paramedics in Australasia, so that's Australia, New Zealand and the surrounding areas and also the United Kingdom, uh, registered health professionals require a uh, minimum three-year bachelor's degree to uh, qualify as a paramedic. Uh, so the foundation education is all at uh, usually within a, a medical school at a university um, before paramedics can go out and practice on the road. Uh, we do in my state, as is most of the is the case in most Australian systems, have a two-tiered system, and it will we'll almost call it a two and a half-tiered system, in that we have the general ambulance population, and those paramedics are able to provide uh, needle decompression of the chest, fluid resuscitation, um, uh, IV opioid analgesia, splinting, etc., um, and supraglottic airway management and and transport to hospital. Quite obviously. Um, the next level is the intensive care level paramedics who uh, have pre-hospital RSI, um, again, the same skill set with some ACLS, uh, some, some other, um, uh, more of that cardiac focused ACLS rather than any more advanced trauma skills. And then the, uh, the helicopter-based paramedics or intensive care flight paramedics add in uh, uh, packed red cells, uh, carry blood, ultrasound, uh, focus for, for uh, diagnostic and uh, IV access, and also uh, finger thoracostomy, for example, for, for chest decompression versus needle. Uh, so, uh, but by that stage of the career, they've, uh, they've gone through another two postgraduate education programs at Monash University uh, to get to that point of seniority. And you, you're talking about a group of people who are minimum 10 years in the field uh, before they would reach that level, uh, plus a, a, a bachelor and nearly a master's degree uh, in the field. So... Uh, a very small 45 people at that top end. So uh, an ambulance service that has four and a half thousand paramedics uh, and only 45 performed that role. Uh, so they're a small group to train, easy to recredential in that skill set and with a maximum exposure of, uh, to, the, to the trauma caseload. And then, uh, as I said, from a systems point of view, uh, all of the patients come back to the adult trauma centres in the, the major metropolitan area. There are step-down level, uh, level two trauma centres across a, a ring, I guess, in the inner regional area that are, are able to provide intermediary care. And some of those hospitals are exceptionally capable and may have everything but uh, neurosurgical services, for example, and, and plus or minus some uh, cardiothoracics. So uh, we're very fortunate in that regard. Um, and the, the state trauma system has a, a very um, pretty, pretty rigid algorithm whereby 
Uh, if a patient meets physiological criteria for major trauma, uh, the usual you would expect GCS heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation, conscious state criteria, um, then and there, there's a mechanism of major trauma added onto that, that person uh, undergoes what we call trauma bypass. So they'll bypass the smallest, nearest hospitals and, and all be taken to the major trauma centres in that primary response, but only if they can get there within 45 minutes by air or road. Uh, if they can't get there in that time frame, they may go to the regional hospital and then get secondarily transported, um, which I'm sure you're all familiar with that concept. Um, but that that's a very big part of Australian pre-hospital care where distance is the tyranny a lot of the time. It's a, an enormous uh, distance a lot of the time to get these major trauma patients back to the major trauma centres. Um, so then from the physiological criteria on our, on our guidelines, it's either then a specific injury. So if someone had uh, two long bone fractures or a suspected pelvis or spinal injury, then that would, that would meet the trauma criteria. And again, if they were less than 45 minutes, they would go direct. And by air, that covers about half the state with the aircraft we fly. We can get most people in that time frame uh, from a population point of view. Um, and then finally, very, very, uh, very much down the algorithm would be mechanism criteria. So we don't we don't weigh heavily on our mechanism criteria. So, for example, if you had a, a vehicular crash greater than sixty kilometres an hour, which I don't can't convert to miles for you, but I think that's about forty miles an hour roughly. Um, so let's say sixty kilometres an hour crash. Uh, that that mechanism is not enough. You need them to have something like a, a modifying factor, we would call it, such as pregnancy, age greater than 55, significant underlying medical condition, and then they would go to the trauma centre on the basis of that, again, within that time frame. Uh, we try and avoid the secondary retrieval and get a run into the trauma centre uh, uh, very, uh, very much as their primary destination. That's a, a key performance indicator of Ambulance Victoria. The service that provides the statewide uh, EMS is... Uh, immediate transport to the to the trauma centre as the primary location is a is a KPI that uh, that is uh, worked against for all paramedics. So, whereby getting them there in the first instance, we know that that uh, improves outcomes quite significantly. So that's all a bit of a mouthful. I'll stop, and if you've got any other questions, I'll, I'll carry on. Yeah, and I was going to ask uh, if you don't mind. Uh, this is Paul Peppy. Uh, now, do you take uh, kids, for example, over to Parkville to the uh, Royal Children's? Yes, spot on. Paul, uh, thanks for that question. Um, the uh, the added trauma centre for children is there is a single statewide trauma uh, trauma hospital, uh, the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, which is um, which is kind of the centre of expertise for almost all of Australia. In fact, they, a lot of patients come from other states to to the Royal Children's for care. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a very large tertiary uh, children's teaching hospital that is the single point of uh, of all trauma for children. Uh, again, they that. And you guys use age there, like less than 16 or something like that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's right? less than 12 now. It was le less than 16, you're correct. And uh, that's recently been reviewed down to 12. So uh, uh, actually, you, you're right. That's a, that from a physiological characterization point of view, it's uh, less than 12. But the, the Royal Children's will take people up to the age of 16. You're correct. 